Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, guest host Richie Ladon speaks with Dr. Peter McGraw and Joel Warner on their recently released book, The Humor Code. Peter McGraw is a marketing and psychology professor at University of Colorado Boulder and founder of the Humor Research Lab. Joel Warner is a journalist writing for many prominent publications, including Wired, The Boston Globe, and Slate. For The Humor Code, Peter and Joel traveled the world in search of what makes things funny, how comedians create humor, and how laughs are used to cope with tragedy and wield political power. Perhaps we could start by you telling me why humor research? Why humor research? Joel, you should do this one. You've heard this so many times. Okay. Peter McGraw, whose background is in looking at moral violations, or one of his one of his issues was looking at was moral violations, was giving a talk at Tulane University. And as an example of a moral violation, he talked about a church that, to help raise money, was auctioning off to a lucky member of the congregation an H2 Hummer. And, uh, and the audience that Pete was presenting to, they, they laughed at this, as they were supposed to. And then one of the members raised their hand, and Pete called on this person. They said, well, if that's a moral violation, why did we laugh at this? And... Uh, Pete had never really thought about that, and that type of thing that kind of stuck with him. And in uh, the months and years that followed, he uh, that led to the creation of the Humor Research Lab, a.k.a. Hurl. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really a perplexing question. I mean, still to this day, right? Still, still we're still de- kind of debating. Um, but when I came back from, from Tulane... You know, as an academic, it's sort of easy to ignore the questions that you get in these boring, esoteric talks, because sometimes you wonder how much the person actually really cares about the answer and how much they just want a chance to <laughs> contribute. <laughs> but but that question really was it was well one it was really perplexing, and then it and then it became one that I realized was really important. Right. So if you think about how much people value humor. Um, that alone, right? So, so we're here in in Portland at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, right? There's just like there's dozens and dozens of shows and thousands of people paying their hard-earned money in pursuit of laughs. Um, in addition to all the other the ways that they go about doing it, in, you know, in movies and television and on the Twitter and all this kind of stuff. And that's just the stuff that we sort of see. And then there's all the behind-the-scenes stuff, how we, the people that we ask out on dates and, and, the, and the folks who become our friends and, and even the places we decide to work are influenced by how funny the people are uh, that, we're, that we're interacting with. And then it goes even further, right, as you start to think about the way that, that humor's been implicated in in things like satire and sort of criticizing oppressors or how humor has been used in terms of, uh, implicated in terms of coping, right? How is it that, that people use it to deal with, with the tragedy that they, 
that they face in the world. And you start putting all those things together and you say, wow, this is a really important question and it's one that, that is worthy of scientific investigation. And uh, I, of course, I didn't have those grand plans. I just at first wanted to answer this question, why do we laugh at moral violations? Mm-hmm. And now, hanging out with Joel, we try to answer questions like, why do people laugh at farts? It's up to you to decide whether I'm on an upward trajectory <laughs> or a downward trajectory. <laughs> We're expanding, to the least, at least. You're expanding your horizons. Uh, broadening, yes. <laughs> Diversifying. So, um, so and you're, you do research in all of these different contexts, then, in a sense. And so, where did benign violation theory come from, and how do you apply that to the research that you do? Yeah, so I, I mean, I have to, to give a lot of credit for this idea. So, um, so the first thing that I did was realize that I couldn't do this alone, and so I recruited a, a graduate student, uh, Caleb Warren, um, who who I was really impressed with, but hadn't been working with, and he just seemed like the right kind of collaborator on this. And then we did something that that. I'm not terribly proud of. We did a search on Google for humor theories. <laughs> and uh, um, thank goodness for Google because uh, we found this little cited paper by a linguist named Thomas Veach. And, uh, and, and Veach put forth this idea that, that really served as the backbone, the foundation for this, this notion that, that humor arises from benign violations. And so what Caleb and I did was added a bunch of psychology to it and started to to test it, and we gave it a, we gave it this different name, and, and essentially the idea is that to, to try to put it simply is that the humor arises from potentially negative situations, from things that that are threatening, that seem amiss or are wrong, while at the same time they seem to be safe, acceptable, or okay. So we use this sort of complicated term, benign violations, but that that I think really captures very nicely the things that we laugh at, the things that we delight in, and the things that we say, hey, that's funny. Mm-hmm. And so, what kind of experiments do you do to to test this this theory? So you know, so the the humor research lab is a is a lab that's roots are in in social and cognitive psychology. So we're we're interested in using mostly experiments, um, behavioral experiments. We also do some survey work out on the web, and so on. And and so these are kind of you know often very simple basic social psychological experiments where you're just kind of tweaking one little aspect of a of a scenario of a situation and uh, and then asking people how funny it is how humorous it is did they laugh and so on so like those moral violation uh, studies that we ran you know we often gave people a little passage you know two or three sentences that describe something that was very clearly wrong and then we tweaked one aspect of it to see if we could make it okay at the same time and thus humorous mm-hmm. so um, what makes a, a violation uh, benign exactly yeah so this is uh, so that was our first paper really was just looking at what are the ways that this happens so so one is that there's some alternative explanation that makes the situation okay so um, one of <laughs> one of the scenarios we used uh, was a situation, it was actually stimuli from a moral psychology paper in which a young man, how do I put this delicately, uses his... You pet, can't put it delicately. It's hard to put it delicately because it's so wrong. He, he uses his 
his pet kitten as a sex toy. So he he, he I get to say this. And this for is a com- and this is a common it's a common uh, anecdote used in these studies. Yeah, I mean it was published it was published in like a top peer reviewed journal as a way to to look at um, how people react emotionally to things that are. Um, that feel wrong, but it's hard to articulate why they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And what we noticed was that those those things are often funny mm-hmm. because they they meet these conditions of a benign violation. And so, uh, in one scenario, and this is a critical element that makes the the scenario funny, is that the pur the kitten purrs and enjoys this contact. Mm-hmm. And so, so that helps make that situation okay because. The kitten's not being harmed, and in right. fact, the kitten seems to be enjoying the ride, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, um, that's pretty. It's pretty easy to, to turn that off, right? You know, in, in the case of this, and, and you just replace that sentence with the kitten whines and doesn't enjoy the contact. Mm-hmm. And then when that happens, and you show people that scenario, it's very difficult to find it okay. So that's so that's one way that that it can be benign. Another one is that you're just not terribly committed to whatever's being violated, right? So, mm-hmm. so um, if you don't care that much about it, so the, the anecdote that, that Joel just talked about with this this holy Hummer is that if you're not if you're not terribly religious, which a group of academics at Tulane evidently isn't, it's it, it helps make it okay, right? You can sort of see the perspective why the church would want to do this. Um, you can also see why it, it would be problematic for a church to act in that way. Mm-hmm. So when we ran a study and we asked people basically how religious they were, how often they, they go to they go to church, the people who go to church regularly are just offended by that mm-hmm. scenario, and the people who don't go to church are they're still offended, but they also find it amusing. <laughs> And then the last thing that we've looked at is this idea of how distance helps make violations benign. And, and not, um, usually it's interacting. Distance. What's that? Psychological distance. Psychological distance. So the, the most obvious one is time, the idea that the passage of time helps transform tragedy into comedy. But there could be other forms of psychological distance, like, um, like social distance. So bad things happening to people that I'm not close to, it's easier to laugh about than bad things happening than, than, uh, um, than to people that I am close to. And then things like um, excuse me, physical distance. So it's easier to laugh at tragedies on the other side of the world than mm-hmm. right here in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, what was the other one? Oh, hypotheticality, right? So it's a lot easier to laugh at a, um, a cartoon character that has an anvil dropped on them than a real person, mm-hmm. right? So, so the, the things that are happening in this unreal world, those violations are are more likely to be okay than the ones that are happening in the real world. Mm-hmm. It's why TV shows like Simpsons or Family Guy can get away with so much more because it's, it's so much less real. Mm-hmm. So the violations can be that much more extreme. It's really fascinating. Like these shows... So South Park is my favorite example of this. Like this is a group of children doing just awful things yeah. and having awful things happen to them. Like It's almost nowhere else do you find that yeah. level of... Malfeasance, or what's the yeah. you're the right child, child, child endangerment, <laughs> and of course the child who is the most in danger. You know the child who's the most in danger, the one who at least for a good while was killed every episode, is the one that looks least human, right? Is the one that you know that you can't see Kenny's face. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's really person. he's the least. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's the most unreal. He has character. a hood over his head. Yeah. And, yeah. he doesn't actually he doesn't, speak. He, mm-hmm. Well, he speaks, but he doesn't, it doesn't sound like English. Yeah, right? no, it just it doesn't sound human. It's just yeah, his muffled right. t- tone. So yes. yeah, yeah. Now, what's interesting is how is it that that is it Trey, um, uh, Matt Stone, and Trey Matt Stone Parker. and Trey Parker? Like, how much did they just sort of intuited that? You know, I wonder about, I would love to ask them, like, how much they sort of just were like, or that just sort of, they just sort of stumbled on this idea, like, oh, that's funny when it happens to that character, and, yeah. you know, like, or how do they, you know, because we can sort of reverse engineer it and make it fit the theory, but but in terms of the creation of it, I think is a really fascinating yeah. question. They haven't returned my emails. <laughs> <laughs> so is that why you spend a lot of time with comics? You're kind of... I wonder, are, are, the, are the comics or comedians, are they, um, do they intuit the, their, their jokes? I mean, from the book you talk a lot about how it takes a lot of practice and you have to have a lot of really bad jokes to, to get to a good joke, right? Um, so what, what have you found in, that, in just your travels through the book and the comedians that you've talked to? Uh, how do they make funny? Um, at least what I've seen traveling around for the humor code, it seems like Humor, uh, comedians and other types of humorists use all sorts of different techniques. And most of them, at least very, very few of the, of the ones we've spoken to, have a set process that, that they can describe. They've just found what works for them. Now, it's, you know, as we've, as we've been talking about, you know, it's, it's sometimes easy to then look at that process, look at, and, uh, and ascribe to it certain certain parameters say oh this fits x y or z but i think most of them i mean in some ways as as we talk about the book it's still science in that these folks have developed and tweaked and experimented with their these own processes and found the optimal process for themselves and they know it works by looking at the results as opposed to saying gee i've this is i'm thinking about in my head beforehand how i actually do this. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, there have been... So, okay, so our first big meeting with a comedian kind of probably set off, set us off on the wrong foot. It was when we sat down with Louis C.K. At, um, and, uh, and we go into the green room in Denver, at this, at this big theater that Louis was performing, and Pete walks in and immediately launches into his benign violation theory, which, which you just heard. And Louis basically cuts him off within a, within a minute or so and just says, oh, I just don't think it's that simple. Just shuts down the conversation. And so that probably set us up the expectation that most, that most comics or comedians would either feel threatened or just not want to hear it. But I have to say, for the, for the most part, comedians are very willing to hear this concept out. And some have really embraced it. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily changed anyone's full performance style creation process, but some definitely get really excited about it and have made that part of their part of their repertoire to think about how they're creating these jokes. You use some great uh, metaphors in the book for how to describe these strategies. You talk about the Jerry Seinfeld strategy and the Sarah Silverman strategy. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So um, a benign violation account is, I think it's useful, it's potentially useful, you know, so yeah, uh, who knows what will end up happening in terms of, like, will it help? But as a theoretical exercise, it, it seems useful 
because it explains the two ways that humor fails, right? You can be too benign and bore people, or you can be too violating and offend people. Um, but it also suggests two methods by which you can make something funny, depending on where your starting point is. So the Seinfeld strategy takes the benign, finds what's wrong with it, right? In a show about nothing, it seems like an everyday kind of situation ends up actually being good fodder if you can find the thing, the peculiarities, the, the tensions that, that exist in the world as, that, we, that we face as humans. Um, and which is really great for Jerry Seinfeld's observational some form of comedy because when Jerry fails, he rarely offends. You know, and this, I think, helps contribute to his likability factor. Um, the Silverman strategy, on the other hand, takes the world of things that are wrong, the, the worlds of violations, and finds a way to make them okay. And uh, I, I think that this is... And by the way, that's a Louis C.K. sort of model also. The upside of that is when you're successful, you get big, big laughs because you're playing on these really big violations. The downside of that, in which Sarah Silverman faces, is that you commit a hate crime on stage <laughs> and you offend people and then you end up being more more divisive than, than uniting in that in that sense. But but what I like about the Silverman strategy is that it that it's actually one that parallels the kind of model that you want to use humor for when you're trying to cope when you're trying to transform tragedy into comedy, you need to find a way to make that situation okay or acceptable in your mind and the minds of others. And uh, that seems like a worthwhile endeavor. Mm-hmm. So we looked at this, at this concept of using humor to cope. It's, uh, it's why we went uh, to the Amazon with Patch Adams' 100 Hospital Clowns uh, to look at this concept of how humor can help psychologically or physically. And... The medical stuff around humor is still pretty dicey. We haven't seen a lot of the research saying that humor can really, you know, improve your health status. But as we found in the Amazon, I mean, we were we were hanging out with clowns in the middle of the jungle for two weeks. It was not a theoretically pleasant experience. But it wasn't a physically yes. pleasant experience. <laughs> but we not. actually, but we actually had a really lovely time, and I think that was in large part because of, of what you said that. It was taking this unpleasant experience, and by virtue of being surrounded by a hundred clowns day in day out, was forcing finding ways to make that benign, to make it to make it to make it funny. And it really did, I think, help us not just not just get through this experience, but have, but have a really wonderful time. Um, and I think, uh, and that's one of was one of my big takeaways from the trip is. Or, for, or from all these trips, which was the potential benefits of thinking like a like a comedian. Um, it's often said that uh, comedians are, in their very nature, outsiders in some degree. It's what they say. That's why you've seen a lot of uh, minorities in the comedy business, whether it's uh, Jewish Americans, African Americans, not as a lot of Muslim Americans or whatnot, because these are these are the people that have one foot in the mainstream but also have or can have one foot outside. So they can kind of, you know, step aside for a moment and say, okay, you know, let's, let's look at what's going on from a comedic viewpoint. What's wrong? How do we make this funny? Um, and I think, you know, we all don't have to be stamp comedians, but we can use this process to take kind of the foibles of our 
of our daily lives. You know, things that's easy for us to, to grumble over, just get frustrated by or obsess over, and just kind of take a step back. And the very process of trying to find the humor in it kind of disarms these things. All of a sudden, you just flip it all around. And by, by finding ways to laugh at or at least get enjoyment from it, it almost removes the threat, removes the violation. So you also talk about humor um, as a tool for grabbing attention or for, um, for activism, even. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that? You talk about the John Stewart effect, and what is that exactly? <laughs> yeah, so this came out of... Uh, we detail this in, in the Humor Code... Um, we got a call from the from the National Council for Teen and Unwanted Pregnancy, and uh, these are folks who are doing outreach uh, to young people and trying to inform them about for, about birth control and and so on. And they've been doing they've been doing something that's been happening a lot in the social marketing world lately, which is that they were they were creating humorous PSAs and putting them on YouTube and on their website and so on. And what's interesting about humorous PSAs uh, is that they break from the traditional model of creating PSAs. So the traditional model is create negative emotions, and people don't like to be in a negative emotional state, and then they'll go about trying to cope with it, and, and they, they often go about coping with it by changing their behavior. Right? So, so you show people a sad Native American who's upset about littering, and then people are like, well, I sh- I'll have more litter because I don't want to feel bad about this. The problem is, is that, that the world of media is so cluttered, it doesn't help to do a PSA if no one watches it, if no one pays attention to it. And so humor is a great way to get people to do that because people just like it, right, as we, as we started this podcast by talking about. What, uh, what this work has revealed is that because humor also is about non-serious, playful, safe situations creates positive emotion, it may backfire. And so so Joel and I um, worked with these guys and, and had them create a serious version of one of their humorous PSAs. And then um, working with some, some folks in Hurl, Phil Fernback and, and Julie Skiro, started, have we been running studies and showing that that is indeed the case, that although there's this upside, this attention-sharing kind of behavior, people just don't see these these issues as problematic. And so... The takeaway from this is a little bit fuzzy, right? So I sort of call this the John Stewart effect um, because John Stewart is a great place to get your news, and people who wouldn't normally watch the news might watch watch the John Stewart, the Daily Show, because it's enjoyable, it's fun, and, and thus they learn about these things. But at the same time, are they sort of demotivated to go about doing the things that are necessary to fix those things. So, you know, does it encourage voting in the same way that a negative emotion, a negative um, message would? Does it, does it discourage donations in a way that, that a negative um, campaign would and so on? Mm-hmm. It's why uh, there's been a long-standing theory around humor, theorists around this idea of humor as, this, as the release valve. Um, it was... Uh, the Soviet Union, in the last years of the USSR, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, became known for this upswell of, pl- of political jokes making fun of the Soviet system. And it's been celebrated as this, this is one of the great examples of kind of human political, political jokes. But one of the theories behind where these, a lot of these jokes came from is that 
the KGB planted these jokes as a way to get the populace making light of the situation as opposed to uh, letting the frustrations build up and, and get vented in a, a more theoretically destructive fashion than joking about it actually rising up against this. So that's, so that's one, of the, you know, one of these theories. What is the function of laughter? And how did humans evolve to laugh? To understand humor, you have to really try to understand this sort of perplexing behavior, this, this, and this notion of laughter. And the way I think about it is that, that laughter serves as a signal, right? It, it's sort of indicative of the social nature uh, of, of humor. Like, we don't really laugh when we're alone often. And if we do, there's some other character, there's some other social aspect of the phenomenon there. Um, I see it as, as people basically saying, hey, this situation that seems wrong is actually okay. And so, and this, this connects to kind of the evolutionary um, precursors of, of laughter in humans. So, so, for instance, like chimps and bonobos and monkeys and, and so on, they all laugh. It's not called laughter, it's called play panting. And, and that word play is really essential as you, as you think about it, that, that this, this sound happens during rough and tumble play. So it happens when, when you know, two apes are engaged in, in play fighting. Um, so the violations are very clear there. You know, there's these physical threats. But because it's play, it's not actually meant to harm. The laughter uh, indicates that, that um, I know you're not trying to hurt me. And um, if that attack gets too serious, goes too far, that's now replaced by other displays now in this term, in, you know, usually fear or aggression. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing that happens in an audience, right? Like the laughter turns to groans, the laughter mm-hmm. turns to anger, right? Boos and hisses mm-hmm. in the same way that this happens with, with apes. Mm-hmm. So over the course of your travels, what surprised you the most? Um, did it generate any new research questions that you're now exploring? It's funny because, like, I'm you know, I get asked this a lot about what was most surprising, but but the because I, I have a strong hindsight bias now, <laughs> <laughs> it all seems like, oh, yeah, of course. Um, so I think you know, so one of the things about this is uh, was going to Palestine and and making a prediction that uh, that we were going to find hilarity there, that we were going to find a good deal of of uh of good-humored Palestinians. Um, And I followed from the idea that there are plenty of violations there and this long history of using using humor as either a tool to criticize or a tool to cope. And in that that way, we thought, that seems like an interesting place to do it, and and you'll find provocative examples. And I was surprised by the amount. Like, so we were right, but but we sort of under-predicted the amount of, uh, of good comedy that, that you found there, not only just in from people pursuing it in an entertainment way, but just you know people using it in their everyday kind of interactions. Um, the other the other thing is that, that now more and more I, I've been thinking a lot about how do you take the answer of what makes things funny and then start to apply it, right? And so that that ends up being the, really the next big question. I mean, Joel Joel challenged me to. Um, to perform stand-up at, at the completion of the the travels as a way to sort of 
prove we've learned something along the way. And, um, you know, the book's not a how-to book, but it really has certainly started me thinking more and more about, you know, is the Silverman strategy, is the Seinfeld strategy more than just a good theoretical exercise? Is it a good practical exercise? And so that's the kind of things that I think now are, are starting to be, are kind of churning in my head and I'm writing down in unpublished documents and things like that. <laughs> what do you think, Joel? My biggest surprise? Um, maybe, maybe going to Japan for the book. We went to Japan to to look at why humor seems to be so diverse, why it seems, why what people seem to find funny um, varies so much based on where you live, your political, cultural background, your gender, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we went to the place that most people said, "We just don't get this comedy. Can you explain it to us?" We went to Japan, and well, it wasn't. To me, what was surprising was just how different a lot of the comedy was. Uh, we thought we'd find uh, differences in comedy. I don't think neither any of us, either of us, knew just how different it would be—not just um, what the comedy was like, but even, but even how it was created. There's basically one company in Japan that manages all of Japanese comedy. 80% of the comedians uh, are managed by this company, Yoshimoto. Yoshimoto owns basically all the comedy theaters. They produce all these game shows where you see the YouTube clips of these crazy Japanese game shows because their comedians are all the contestants on them. And most strikingly and most surprisingly to me was the fact that if you want to be a comedian in Japan, you have basically to go to one of Yoshimoto's mandatory comedy training schools. And it's all very regimented. It's very much about following certain rules to become a comedian, which is the exact opposite from what we see here. We see here at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, where it's all a bit messy. And so it was striking to me how different comedy can be, and yet, yeah, we all, yeah, we all kind of respond to this comedy in the same way. We all, you know, we all get enjoyment. We all, we all find laughter. We share it with others. So that was striking. Joe Warner, Peter McGraw, thanks for being on Office Hours. Thank you. Thank you. I wish my Office Hours were this good. Yeah. <laughs>